Genesis chapter 1. If you're new with us, we are spending 11 weeks looking at Genesis uh, chapters 1 to 11 that lays the foundation of so many things for us. Uh, and today uh, we're circling back to uh, day 6 uh, to talk about uh, the Imago Day, the image of God. So let's pray together as we uh, have a look at this important topic. Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you that you haven't left us in the dark. That your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light to our path. And I pray that today um, you would uh, not only help us to understand your word, but that you would impress its truth on our hearts in such a way that it impacts the way we live. Uh, for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Who am I? This is not just a question that Jason Bourne asked in the movie Bourne Identity after losing his memory. It's an important question today. It's an, indeed a, a dominant question today as identity uh, remains a central issue uh, in our lives and in our culture. People define themselves today in terms of race, ethnicity, sex, gender, region, family, trade, favorite sports teams, and so on. But to get to the question of identity, we need to ask a prior question, and that is, what is a human being? And those who embrace Genesis chapter 1 answer this differently than many in the modern world. Vaughn Roberts gives a striking illustration, saying, Th think about a piece of modern art on the wall. You look at that piece of art and you say, what is it? It's often not clear to me when I look at modern art. A chemist may describe the painting in terms of various chemical substances distributed in certain patterns across the canvas. A physicist might go into the spectral properties of the pigments. Other brilliant scientists might be able to tell us the age of the painting or the origin of the materials from which it was made. They can tell us many true and fascinating things about the painting. But while their answers may be accurate, we would say they're also inadequate. To get a full and satisfactory answer to the question, what is it, we need to ask the painter. The painter could tell us, oh, it's a sunset on a spring evening in the Outer Banks. And then what was mysterious now makes sense to us. And so here we are talking about human beings today. And we're grateful for science. We all benefit from science. And science can tell us many true and fascinating things about human beings. In fact, many have uh, described humans in, in the sense that they could be described as a collection of chemicals. We have the hu a human person, enough water to fill a 10-gallon barrel, fat for 10 bars of soap, depending on situation, carbon for 9,000 lead pencils, phosphorus for 2,200 match heads, iron for a medium-sized nail, lime to whitewash a shed, small quantities of magnesium and sulfur, all accurate but inadequate. In an atheistic worldview, human beings are nothing more than a mass of elements that has slowly evolved into a living organism through a random and purposeless force. And therefore, any talk of value and purpose in life is pointless. And I submit to you today that to get to the, ans get to, get to the answer of, of what is a human being, we need a theological answer. And for that, we go to Genesis 1. Because you see, we have the author himself. God tells us what a human being is. The author of life himself has described what our lives are like. 
And to get to this answer of the human being, we need to understand what it means to be made in the imago Dei, in the image of God. And I want us to look at these verses in six parts. They all begin with R for your help, or at least my help. Man is reflecting the character of God. Man is relating to God and others. Mankind is called to rule. Fourth, to reproduce. Fifth, to receive provision from God. And sixth, God is renewing us through Christ. So we'll look at those six in a moment. Just to catch you up from last week, I noted a few things that are uh, helpful as we, we scroll through this text. We noticed in verse 26, God says, on this particular moment, let us make rather than let there be. There's a divine dialogue taking place or divine deliberation. We also pointed out how mankind is the apex of God's creation and that both men and women reflect God's glory. We pointed out how this Hebrew word for create, bara, is only used uh, of God. Only God does that kind of work of creating out of nothing. And this uh, word for create is used regarding human beings some ten times in the Old Testament. We also said that the Imago Dei is best reflected in Jesus, who perfectly the, images the Father, that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God, as Paul says. And one day he will come and subdue all his enemies. We also pointed out in verse 29 that God speaks to man very uniquely, and that he calls us to be fruitful and multiply and to exercise dominion. And then verses 29 and 30 point out how God has provided and after the six days were finished, God says not just that it was good, but it was very good. So we are created beings by this creator God of Genesis chapter 1. We are not accidents. Chapter 1 shows us that mankind is the pinnacle of God's creative activity. Chapter 2, verses 4 and following, uh, goes on to explain more about uh, mankind. It's not a contradictory account, but a complementary account. It looks at the creation of uh, mankind from a different angle and with more detail and with a specific focus. Chapter 1 puts mankind uh, as the pinnacle. Chapter 2 puts mankind as pivotal in the story of redemption. So let's think about these things together. First of all, reflecting. We have the capacity to reflect the glory of our Creator God as human beings. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The word man is the word Adam or Adam. Adam is a, a theologically fitting word since it can refer to mankind in general or to an individual person or a proper name. And so he creates man in his image. And we see in chapter 2, Adam and Eve are, are then described. Now what does it mean to be in his image? And what does this phrase after our likeness mean? Well, I think the two are very helpful because the idea of after our likeness helps to both define what image is, but it also limits what the idea of image is. In other words, we are not God. We're in the likeness of God, though. We can resemble Him in certain ways in our nature, in, in function. And again, this is in great contrast to many modern worldviews where people are nothing, having evolved from apes, or essentially they're gods. And uh, you see all of that illustrated with how uh, people are self-absorbed with their lives and so on. But the Imago Dei is saying something better about you and I. It's saying that you have dignity. You're created by this God. 
You're created, you're fearfully, as the psalmist says, and wonderfully made. But you're not God. You're made to worship this God. And therein you find your ultimate joy. Now the word image is often translated in the Old Testament as idol. An idol is something that makes an invisible God visible. And we are not allowed to commit idolatry, obviously. But what we do is we make the invisible God visible in certain ways being made in the image of God. We can mirror some of the attributes of God in this world. Now, there are three important passages in the book of Genesis that speak about being made in the image and likeness of God. We're looking at the primary one today, but let me uh, draw attention to the other two. The next one is in Genesis chapter 5, uh, verses 1 to 3. And in this particular text, the writer points back to Genesis 1 and then at, at the creation of man being made in the likeness of God and then lists a genealogy. And the idea is that the genealogy is a reminder that this line shares the image of God. So Genesis 5, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. That's the echo of Genesis 1. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man when they were created. And then watch verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So notice also how this passage helps us understand what it means to be made in the image of God as you see uh, that Seth is in the image of his father. The son has the capacity to be in light and act like his father. And so too we have the capacity to mirror some of our creator's attributes. The other passage is in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. And there the image of God is justification for, for prohibiting murder. Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of, of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So it's wrong to murder because it's an assault upon the divine image, and therefore an assault on God himself. And since these last two references, Genesis 5 and Genesis 9, come after the fall, which happens in Genesis 3, we can see that the image of God was not entirely lost when humanity fell. It's been marred, but it isn't lost. That is to say, everyone that's a human being images God. They reflect God in a, 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 a general sense, mirroring some of God's attributes. And we read in the New Testament, more about this in a moment, that through Christ we can image our Creator more. We're being made more into the likeness of Jesus. Now, an obvious implication of embracing this view of humanity is that our human value is not achieved by success or accomplishment or race, or family, or intellect, or athleticism, or wealth. It's a matter of being made in the image of God. If you look into the face of any human being, regardless of their background, you are looking at a man or woman bearing the stamp of God's image. Therefore, this is foundational for how we see people and how we treat people. Murder is an outrageous injustice because people are image bearers of God. And any attack on human life, including in the womb, is an assault on God himself. Everyone is worthy of dignity and justice and respect because they're made in God's image. And that's why we named our church this name. We might should have gone with English, but that's what we've got. Amago Dei, the, the Latin, <laughs> right? We've had oh, many people ask us about our name. Like, what, what, are you guys Spanish? People have asked me that in my neighborhood. It's like, no, it's Latin, actually, but appreciate it. Um, 
It's that Joe DiMaggio church. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go to church today, one guy said. That's what, it, that's what he thought our shirt meant. I'm going to go to church today. Um, no, no, Imago Day. And back in the day, Kimberly and I would go on trips just before we planted this church, and we, we would play the church planting game, you know, like where are we going to plant the church, what's our name going to be, and all these sorts of things. And we landed on Imago Day a long time ago just because I love that what the idea that it carries that every single person is worthy of dignity and value and respect and protection and love and justice, and that there are no gradations in the image of God. Right? The writer of Proverbs says, the rich and the poor meet together, the Lord is the maker of them all. The, the poor man and the oppressor meet together, the Lord gives light to the eyes of both. James says if we uh, speak ill against a person, in James chapter 3, uh, he prohibits that because you're speaking against one who's made in the likeness of God. The Imago Dei was foundational for the work of Martin Luther King Jr., who once said, there are no gradations in the image of God. And he gives a striking illustration. Every man from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard. I like that. Precisely, he says, because every man is made in the image of God. So let's value human life. C.S. Lewis reminds us of the value of a human being when he says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. It is immortals that we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. So if we embrace the Imago Dei, we will care about every person, from the womb to the tomb, of every class, every race, every place. That's number one. Man is reflecting. Secondly, mankind is made to relate, to relate to God and to people. We have that kind of capacity. He says, let us make man in our own image. There is, again, some divine dialogue taking place as we read the rest of the Bible. We know that we're made in the image of our triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're made by a relational God in His image who speaks here to uh, to, to man in Genesis 1. And in chapter 2, of course, we read that he makes a helper so we can relate to God, we relate to others. So let's think about relating to God for a moment. We are created as persons by a personal God. God made us unlike the rest of creation. We can know him in relationship. He formed us and breathed life into us. Now, because of sin, chapter 3 of Genesis our sin has alienated us from God, broken this relationship, but Jesus has come to repair what is broken and to restore us back to God. As John 17, 3 puts it, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Now, this is not, uh, again, uh, stands in contrast to many thought, uh, many, many thinkers today. Many downplay this idea that you are actually a spiritual being. They downgrade the spiritual, elevate the physical. And we, we see in Genesis 1, we're complex beings. That we are indeed physical beings, and God is indeed concerned with our physical bodies. We are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. God cares about where our feet go, what our eyes look at, uh, what we do with our sexual organs, and so on. We, we must not downgrade the physical. We'll have physical glorified bodies in heaven. I can't wait for that hair. It's going to be amazing. But we're also spiritual beings. 
There's more to your life than your physical body. Being made in God's image means that you have certain Godward capacities. We worship Creator God. Now, the reality is, if we don't worship Creator God, what we're really great at is inventing other things to worship. And this is the cause of so much disappointment in life. Even when people don't realize that this is the cause of the disappointment. As Augustine put it, you have created us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Paul Tripp puts it eloquently when he says, detached from God, our spirituality drives us into various forms of functional insanity. Careening from God to God and from disappointment to disappointment, we attach ourselves to yet another created thing and hope once again it will do for us what it can never do. We put God-like expectations on one another and we break under the burden. We keep hoping creation will do what it simply has no capacity to do for us and that it will offer what God alone can. The deepest, most beautiful, and mysterious human abilities were given so that we would be able to commune with and worship our God. We have that kind of capacity as one made in the image of God, and we get to do it together, not just as isolated individuals. So let's talk about that part, relationship to others. You look everywhere and see the longing for relationships in society. You can just think through the most popular television shows through the years and one by one, you see how there's a focus on relationships. The show Cheers, sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. That's basic to humanity. Or the show Friends, I'll be there for you. I don't know what Seinfeld was about, really. They said nothing, but um, <laughs> it's also about friends. And then I love the show Lost, and you get to the end of it, you realize, oh, they're all dead. But it was still about friends. They just were dead. Um, <laughs> And then movies in Castaway, Tom Hanks invents a friend. He's so lonely. Kimberly and I recently watched that great theologically rich movie, Fast and the Furious 10. And, <laughs> and I read an article about that, that movie, and they said one of the reasons it stuck around is not because people believe that stuff actually could happen, but because there's a value of family undergirding that, that series. You can figure out if that's true or not, but... Um, Anyway, you get it. In music, it's all about relationships. Your kids go to a new school or they go to an, an activity and you ask, did you make any friends? Why is this? Because we're made in the Imago Dei. We're made for relationships. Think about this in chapter 2 of Genesis. In the garden, everything is good except one thing. It's not good for man to be alone. Even though there's no sin... And Adam is in a perfect garden. If you're an introvert, you might think that's paradise. There's nobody here <laughs> in a perfect garden. That's amazing. No, it's not. It's not good for Adam to be alone. Keller says, God made us in such a way that we couldn't even enjoy paradise without friends. He says, Adam had a perfect quiet time every day for 24 hours a day, yet he needed friends. He says, you get lonely because you're not a tree. You're lonely because you're not a machine. You're lonely because you're built this way. We're not trees. We're not a machine. We're not our accomplishments. When someone is on a deathbed, they don't go tell someone, hey, can you bring my diploma so I can hold it? <laughs> you know that trophy I won while I was in sixth grade? Can you bring that to me? No, you want to hold people. It's because we're made for relationships. And God has given us the need or he's fulfilled this need 
in family and friends, basically, and spiritually in the gospel, a spiritual family of brothers and sisters called the church. So at the heart of living like we believe in the Imago Dei is that we love God and we love people. We are relational beings. Thirdly, I'll move quicker through the next, don't worry, ruling, I think. Here is a really immediate and clear definition of the image of God in the very next sentence, and that is that we have dominion. Let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is sometimes referred to as the cultural mandate. People use that expression sometimes to talk about this idea of ruling, of, of having dominion. And it's the starting place for understanding the dignity and value of work, that our work has value, that we're made in the image of God. Part of that means we're workers. Later in chapter 2, verse 15, it says that the Lord took the man and put him in the garden, not just to goof around, but to work it and keep it. Now, of course, because of the fall, our work has been frustrated, but nevertheless, we are still reflecting the character of our God as we work. And there's something beautiful and striking when you see someone skilled in their work and doing it well and, and doing it joyfully. Oz Guinness tells a story of a lady named Jane who was a young mother and a widow living in Scotland in the 1800s, and she fell into depression and was contemplating suicide. And she went down to the river and she got on this bridge and was thinking about jumping when she saw a man across the river plowing and working in a field. And she observed how he was working with such passion and care and skill, and she left the thought of suicide and her fascination had turned to wonder and to purpose and to meaning as she saw a man doing the Lord's work. There's a certain dignity about work. And Paul says even further that we do our work unto the Lord. And so that's a remarkable thing. And there's dignity in this idea of ruling. In the ancient Near East, there was the idea that the king made God, their false God, visible by ruling on behalf of that God. But here in Genesis 1, we see that every human being has this royal status, ruling on behalf of God. That is to say, we're set apart from the animal kingdom. God made us to rule, to be stewards, not to dominate in a sense of uh, abuse, but to rule for the good of humanity, for the human flourishing of society, and for the glory of God. And again, sadly, because of sin, many abuse this responsibility. But to rule well means we image our, our God well. That's when we rule well, because then we're mimicking his character, which is not one of abuse, but one of well-doing beauty. So the call here is to make the earth's resources useful for human flourishing. This is foundational for scientific and technological development. And we are called to rule, verse 28, over every living thing, over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens and every living thing. There were two memorable uh, conversations I had last week after preaching on Genesis 1. One was the number of guys who came up and talked to me about how much they love to look at their yard after they cut it. Uh, <laughs> this one guy says, man, when I cut my grass, I drive by real slow. Uh, <laughs> I was like, me too, man. Um, 
And then the other was Michael Britt, who is an avid fisherman. And he uh, told me that he cried three times during the sermon. And I was like, you know, man, it's, it's, it really is an amazing chapter, the greatness of God and human beings. And he's like, no, I don't cry with people. He's like, because when you're talking about fish, it just really got me, man. I'm just, just really thankful for fish. So anyway, here's, here's Michael's favorite verse, to, to have dominion over the fish of the sea. Um, again, this is not for abuse. We are not to exploit God's earth and his creatures to satisfy greed, but to wisely govern it, care for it, in a way that reflects God's own character. We get to be caretakers of God's creation. And in the Old Testament, we see this command is extended to your livestock. Proverbs 12, a righteous man cares for the needs of his animal. So go pet your dog to the glory of God and take care of it. So we're not just part of creation. That's the point here about being rulers, that we are designed for a leadership role. And we're, we're made this way. And this should impact how we build institutions, cultures, cities, how we deal with problems as stewards of God's creation. Now, fourthly, one that you guys don't need a lot of help with is we're called to be reproducing creatures as well. This idea of procreation. We are created male and female, verse 27. And then we read of this well-applied verse at Imago Dei, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You guys need to read some other verses too, other than that one, okay? Uh, we had 120 kids under the age of four last Sunday. Uh, I blame COVID. You guys are just <laughs> cooped up too much, you know. Uh, anyway, um, it is a blessing. It's a remarkable blessing. And this idea of blessing is attached to uh, fertility and to childbearing throughout Genesis. And it's foundational for understanding what it means to be a parent. But it's also foundational for salvation. God would use this means, albeit through a miracle birth, uh, a virgin birth, to bring forth the Savior, right? There's the promise in chapter 3, verse 15, that one is going to come from the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. God chose that means, that the ultimate offspring would come. As Paul would say in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. It's really a remarkable thing. God deliberately, notice this, created humanity into two sexes, to be fruitful and to increase in number. So we're saying a lot about human beings here. We've noted that we're physical beings, spiritual beings, relational beings, beings that have a relationship to the world as God's stewards, but now we also see that we are sexual beings. All of this is part of God's good design. He created us male and female. Our gender, our sexuality is fundamental to who we are. Made in the image of God. He didn't just make humanity generically, but as male and female. Now, I don't have to tell you that this clashes with the way many people think in today's society. You often hear this notion, one isn't born a woman, but rather becomes a woman. Gender theorists put that sort of thing out all the time. That gender is not something you, uh, it, it, gender is something you do, they say, rather than something that you are. But our sexuality, our gender is given by God. 
and it is fundamental to who we are. And it's an aspect of being made in the image of God. God made us male and female, both with equal value, but with differences. And it's dangerous and destructive to deny these differences. When we rebel against the way God has made us, things go terribly wrong. We're not freeing people, we're harming people. Our gender is God-given, and we're not free to go against it or to change it. God's designs, all of them, are for our good. He made us male and female. And here they're told to be fruitful and multiply as reproducing creatures, male and female. We are reproducing. Fifthly, we are receiving creatures. We receive from what God, we receive what God has given us for our provision. You read in verses 29 to 31 that God gives us the seed-bearing plants and the fruit trees. This is for our consumption. We work the ground, we, we toil, right? We, we labor, but God is the one who has provided these things so that we may uh, uh, live and be sustained. We're relying upon God. Now we see the, the vegetables here in chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. After the flood, meat eating is expressly sanctioned. That's my favorite part of Genesis, where you can have some protein. Uh, but the focus here in, in Genesis 1 is not on um, whether or not you're a vegetarian, but the fact that God provides, and we rely on him. The picture is of a, of a God who is benevolent and gracious. As we just read in Psalm 145, opens up his hand, and satisfies the desire of every living thing. And we should receive God's provision with thankfulness. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 4, for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. I'm sure some of you will go to lunch right after this service. I will enjoy some jambalaya with both chicken and sausage. And I will receive it with thankfulness. <laughs> There's a professor that I, I taught a seminar with named Carl Ellis. He's about 76 years old now. And uh, we were having Indian food. I love Indian food. And apparently he did too. He sat down to eat it. We let him go through the line first because he was, he's an older guy. And uh, I, I, know, I looked over at him and he took a bite. And he started putting his hands up worshiping. He said, oh, thank you, Lord, thank you. And he would take another bite. Thank you. I was like, that's what I want to be like, you know, uh, when I grow up. Just that thankful for God's provision. God is the giver of these things. All that I have needed, the hymn writer says, thy hand has provided. Man is receiving. Finally, number six, God is renewing. I think it's good to finish our time by thinking about this reality of the image of God as believers. As Christians, we've been doing that, but in terms of what the gospel, how the gospel impacts this understanding. That is, God is renewing us as Christians as we are being sanctified, a word we use to speak of. We're now being made more into the image of Jesus. And one day we will be glorified. We will see him as he is and be like him. God is doing this renewing work. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says, And put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of uh, after uh, of its creator we are new people being renewed by god god is doing this by his grace i told this story several times i think at imago day but it's it's one that i love because it's it's so memorable and it illustrates this idea when augustine was converted he was only 32 years old um, 
but he had lived a very promiscuous life. He describes it in his book, Confessions. He had multiple girlfriends. Then he miraculously becomes a Christian. And he meets one of his, girl, his old girlfriends, and she starts chasing him down the road. And he's just running, because this is what Augustine ran like. And he's looking back, and, and, and she keeps saying, Augustine, Augustine, it is I, it is I. And he just keeps, you know, and Augustine, it is I, it is I. And eventually he turns around and says, but it is not I. It is not I. That's what happens when you become a Christian. You get a new I. You become a new person. You put on, as Paul says here, the new self. And this new self, you may look like your old self a little bit on the outside. you got a new self. And that new self is being renewed after the image of our creator. And one day we will see Jesus and we will be glorified. And we will experience that renewal in a full way. Now, how is this going on currently? Look, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So as we behold Jesus, we are becoming like Jesus. This is how he's transforming us. This is how he is renewing us. And believers have these great promises, like Romans 8, 29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. That's where we're headed. Or as Paul says toward the end of 1 Corinthians 15, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. What a God we have who creates us in his image with all of the distinctive characteristics. And then after the fall, sin enters the world and ravages the world. He sent Jesus, the visible image of the invisible God, to live a perfect life, to die a substitutionary death, to rise from the dead, giving us eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and one day he's coming again, and we will see him, and we will be like him. And then perfect justice and peace will reign on the earth as God renews the whole cosmos in a new heaven and a new earth. And then there will be no more abuse of the Imago Dei. No more oppression. No more murder. No more violence. No more denigration. No more partiality. No more injustice. We have this eager expectation and hope as believers while we live in this present moment seeking to glorify our God who created us. We will be like him in a place of total peace and justice when the world is renewed in a new heaven and new earth. We have a future as believers, and it is very bright. And praise be to God. Let's pray together and offer the Lord thanks. Father, we thank you for your word, for the nature of it. It is, it is true, it is sufficient, it is powerful, our need for it. We live in a world with all kinds of voices telling us who we are and where we came from and so on. We thank you for the clarity of your word. I pray we would be people of deep conviction, even as we live with compassion in this world where people disagree with us, but never let us compromise our biblical convictions that you have given us. Give us the boldness we need, give us the courage we need, and give us the compassion 
to deal with people who are also made in the Imago Dei. And use us, we pray, even this week as your ambassadors. As we go to work, as we go to school, as we play, whatever we're doing this week, may we seek to live to your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.